I don't want a pickle I just want to ride on my motorcycle Alright, welcome everybody. This is episode 50 of the NoCo Moto podcast. I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. And returning again, we have Dr. Mike Action. Hey. All right. So we're going out to over 20 countries easily now, so easily looking at the numbers. We've had a whole bunch of great weather. We've had a whole bunch of wonderful things happen. It's been about a year now we've been doing this, you mentioned now, right, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I think your next episode, thereabouts, will be your one-year anniversary. Yeah, I'll have to go on the dates and check that out. But yeah, we're pretty close, more or less. Yeah. Although I think the last episode we called Season 2, Episode 1, just because it's a new year. Or something like that. So this is season two, episode two, or episode... How do we want... I'm just going to keep going with the episodes in, in number, right? At some point, when we have 200 episodes, that'll just look impressive, rather than season three, episode 14, or whatever, right? You know? So, right, moving on here. First thing we've got is emails. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to read this email, Swigs? Yep, let's do it. So this is from Colin, who originally asked us for picking a new bike when he was riding his uh, 2004 Sportster and he was looking for something a bit different and he uh, sent us a follow-up email. Hey guys, it's Colin. I emailed you a few months back about recommendations for a second bike. I have been pretty busy and have just recently caught up on your new episodes. I was considering middleweight bikes such as the SV650, NC700, V-Strom, and Versus. After starting on a 2003-83 Sportster with the intent of selling the Harley and getting something a bit faster. You guys responded to my email on episode 28, and after much deliberation, the FC09 came as the top recommendation. I had considered the MTFC bikes, as well as their XSR cousins, and I ended up buying an MT07 off Craigslist. The reasoning behind it was the idea of riding a slower bike fast equals more fun, and I can always escalate in the future. I read some reviews online similar to your verdict, the NC700, and the word boring appeared multiple times. And most of the SV650s I was seeing in my area were older, didn't have ABS and or had carbs, etc. This must have been some old SVs, because the SV was fuel injected around 2002, I want to say. Uh, I think it went fuel injection later than that. I, it was one of those bikes that was surprisingly unchanged for a huge amount of time. I th- I always thought it was the one that went really early. In any case, let's continue. The bike I got was a 2018 MT-07 with just over 500 miles. I pushed it past the 500 mile mark test riding it. I bought it from a from an avowed Yamaha fanboy. He had an R1 and an R3 sitting in the garage. I got it for six grand in new condition with the comfort seat and fender delete kit already done. All I had to do was the post break in oil change. I thought it was funny that the 07 was nominated as the worst bike in the world in the very episode you responded, but so far I'm happy with the 07. It easily reaches 100, which is something I could not achieve on the 83. I was in the middle of moving out to Colorado, hence the delay. I actually listened to episode 28 while driving a U-Haul truck cross-country with a bike inside. You guys were pretty close reading between the lines. The Sporty was my first bike, and I was looking to move up to something a little different. However, I have only owned it since April, and I rode it whenever possible this past summer and went on several trips with a buddy. 
My original plan was to sell the Sportster after buying the Yamaha, but long story short, I currently own both bikes and plan to sell the Harley in the spring. In the one season I've been riding, I racked up 3,300 miles on the Harley and 600 miles on the Yamaha. The Sporty was a great bike to start out on, and the problems it had were fairly uncomplicated and a good intro to wrenching. First, I replaced a throttle cable, which snapped in the parking lot, thankfully. The battery went to shit shortly after replacing the cable, and I got quite good at bump clutch starting it. I installed a new battery shortly after this problem cropped up because I got sick of looking like an idiot pushing it around gas stations and parking lots. I also had both headlight and taillight go out on separate occasions, both at night on the interstate, which made for some exciting rides home. The most time-consuming problem was troubleshooting a broken Petcock vacuum line hose. So overall, the Sporty has been a good bike, and I would hold on to it if I could, but the MT-07 is taking over as the go-to commuter. And on top of that, there are a plethora of KLR 650s on Craigslist throughout Colorado that I could easily fund once I sell the 883. So now you're thinking. P.S. I would also like to take credit for one of the iTunes reviews, specifically the one penned by Shitbird. Also, I heard a story when laying it down actually made sense. A ride was coming around a blind corner and a crew of linesmen were working on power lines and had left a low-hanging cable across the road at a dangerously low height for a motorcyclist and the guy dumped it. I can't remember the source of the story, but it is a very specific and rare situation that came to mind when listening to your podcast. Keep up the good work. Call Cool. So I hadn't, I hadn't read this email yet, which is weird because I normally read them all first. But so, again, this is like last week. Weirdly, people are taking our advice seriously and we're influencing purchasing decisions, which I don't think I'm ever going to get used to. <laughs> I do remember giving that advice. And, yeah, it was funny because I said, oh, go with an FC07. That's a perfect thing. And then, yeah, you'd said the FC07. But we did come to the conclusion on that episode that the FC07 was only the worst bike in the world if purchased new. There was no reason not to purchase the FC09. And I think I remember that we came to the conclusion that buying a used FC07 was fine. Because the... Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the, the values... There was a weird thing there. But yeah, uh, I'm super excited by this. And now he's actually living in Colorado. So I don't know. I, Colin, like, get a hold of us. We're going to have to ride or something, right? And yeah, um, I mean, that, yeah, that shitbird, that was an early, uh, that was an early one. That was like shitbird, like 11,000 or something, I think was the name on that. That was an early, early review that we got on iTunes. So way to go there, Colin. You have definitely paid your price of admission for listening to the show okay that, that brought me back to first year rider like used bike fixing stuff bump starting yeah and you know what he's got in like four thousand miles on his first year of riding which I'll, I'll be honest a lot more riding than i did on my first year so mm-hmm. yeah, that's you impressive. Know, yeah way to go love hearing this shit now we got another we got another ally in colorado Awesome. So yeah, turn on all your friends around the area because we really need to build up our Colorado specific listening audience. At some point, I want to like, you know, have a big ride with with listeners and stuff like that. At some point, I mean, I'm not yeah, really into know, big rides, but I want to do something like that at some point. It, it's funny you say that because as a New Year's resolution, like I went I went through a lot of crap in 2018. Like 2018 was a crazy year, 
And it lightened up for me in like seriously the first week of December. Like a lot of problems went away that had been plaguing me. So now 2019, like I've made this big list of stuff I want to do and like hosting a ride is on the list. Yeah. I mean, that, that one we did for um, Habitat for Humanity a few years back went pretty good. We could do, we could get something like that going again pretty easily, I think. So, mm-hmm. yeah, people stay tuned for that one. All right, so uh, let's talk bikes. We're going to do best, worst bike in the world now? Let's do it. Okay. Whew. Disclaimer. If this is your first episode, check it out. Every week, me and Swiggy pick the best and worst bike in the world this week. If you're offended by what we pick, don't worry. There'll be a new best and worst bike next week. But in the meantime, if you have a dissenting opinion or whatever, and it's, you know, interesting and adds to the conversation, by all means, send us an email. But, you know, if you just have your feelings hurt and that's what you want to gripe about, well, there's no crying in motorcycles. So, you know, whatever. But having said that, keep in mind, it's just a fun way to look at two bikes that you might not normally take a second look at. So, Swiggy, you have worst bike in the world this week, right? Yep. You ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is? Big Red. (laughs) So. (laughs) Okay, Swiggy, what are we looking at? Yeah. Okay. So, I am now... I'm not picking a single bike. I am targeting a whole lineup here, which is the 70s through 80s, both the US and the ATC brand of Honda trikes. These are hilarious, but yeah, these are just death machines. (laughs) Oh my God. So Honda started to capitalize fairly early on in the all-terrain cycle right a series of off-road trikes and they varied between 70 to 249 cc's all single cylinder air cooled and they're actually kind of neat they were fairly capable but a lot of people died on these these were total death traps they're straight up illegal now right I can't. I don't know if they're illegal, but there there's been a huge. I mean, they're illegal to sell, I believe. Uh, these ones, I think you can only really get them as collectors' items now. Yeah, but they. I don't think any of them ever came with proper road titles or anything yeah. like that. They're just straight up off road vehicles. But for a dealer to sell a new one or even a used one, I believe is just flat out illegal. I I didn't find that, but. It wouldn't surprise me. Now, the thing is, these bikes, they started off doing pretty well, and Honda just dominated this side of the market. Yeah. They had something, like, by the by the late 70s, they had something like 70% of the market cornered. And they were making these in all sizes. And I believe they're all three or four gear transmissions. And... They're making somewhere between 6 and 18 horsepower, depending on the displacement. And they're only making about 13 foot-pounds of torque. They're not doing a lot. Yeah. And that was kind of the charm of them, is that, oh, it's got three wheels. It's planted. It only does 25 miles an hour. 
What could go wrong? Fun for the whole family. <laughs> if you're planning your next birthday party at the ICU. <laughs> so that's kind of a big part of it because these really got popularized. These these really kicked off and got popularized by James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone was buying these. And because everyone thought, you know, this is in the 70s, nobody's wearing helmets. Nope. There's a lot of drinking and driving. It's basically the national sport. This is the era of safety third. <laughs> yeah. So everyone was buying these and there were just a shit ton of accidents. In 1986, Honda actually got taken to court in an injury lawsuit where somebody put together all the stats and somewhere around 780 people had died or were seriously injured on these bikes. Half of them were 15 years old and under. Like, this yeah. bike <laughs> destroyed a lot of families. Yeah. It, it absolutely was horrendous. And I at the time, the Honda CEO actually wept in court as this information was being conveyed to him, as the mm. report was being shown to him. Well, what, as about, they just, what about the bike contributed to that? So it's a couple things. Now, the bike has a fairly high center of gravity, as you can see, just with just how large the tires are. And that's something that stayed fairly consistent between the models. And it didn't really handle as badly as people say it did. But the thing is, there's a couple of factors that come together. One is, oh, it only goes 25 miles an hour. How dangerous could it be? Well, 25 miles an hour is plenty enough to fuck you up. I, I will direct you to the first Jackass movie where they fuck themselves up on a golf cart that only does 25 <laughs> miles an hour, right? Right. And also, it's all-wheel drive. It's, oh, it's got a bunch of torque. It'll just keep going. We can just take this up any terrain. And eventually, you do what rednecks do on ATVs today, which is you go up a hill that's way too big and all of a sudden it flips over and this 400 pound vehicle is lying on top of you and you don't have a helmet and we haven't even yet addressed the three wheel problem which is weight transfer yeah so when this bike turns the forks just turn but the bike doesn't lean so so you weight, start leaning your weight body and in. yeah mm -hmm. the, you've got the centripetal force and everything and the bike is planted up until the moment it's not. And then it goes flying over. And this is the fundamental problem with basically all trikes that are two in the rear. Right. So if you look at any Honda produced commercial for the last 40 years, you will not find a single one with uh, an ATV with a rider not wearing jacket, pants, boots, and helmet. And gloves. And gloves. You will not see anyone not wearing full gear. When we went to Coda, and when we went to AIM, Honda was the only brand doing test rides where they made sure you had a motorcycle jacket, you had a helmet, 
you had long pants, and you had at least ankle-high boots. Everyone else was like, oh, you got a DOT helmet, you got a jacket, okay, that's good. Or with Harley, it's like, it's got to say DOT on it. And like, after that, whatever. Yeah. I don't think Indian was even asking for DOT. Indian was like, yeah, if you got no safety gear, I'll just take a tattoo instead. Right. (laughs) Right. But this bike is the reason. This was a huge PR nightmare. This really dealt a huge blow to Honda's image. And this is where they turned it around and just said, we have to go the complete opposite direction and make a huge statement about how big we are into safety. Yeah. Well, and you know, Suzuki and Yamaha made quite a few of these things as well, but theirs were all two strokes. And they, I mean, they were like, like Yamaha was making 200 CC two stroke three wheelers like this. And because like you said, Honda had so much of the market, they really took the brunt of the, of, of the backlash against all the accidents that were happening on these things. So sort of kudos to Honda there. They, they could have tried to spread it around a little bit because I've never heard anything about Suzuki or Yamaha taking a whole lot of flack for these things. Mm -hmm. Right. And in the end, this whole line of bikes just killed off an entire market, like an entire sub market just died. So because people wanted these things obviously oh yeah if we if we had an open field the three of us right now and a couple six six packs of beer and one of these things we would have endless fun until multiple collarbones were broken absolutely like there there are few ways to enjoy yourself more in the middle of nowhere with a couple just dudes than one of these things it's just ultimately not a great idea it looks fun and so if this were Mario Kart in the 50cc class, and let's say the the monkey was Mario, this thing would be like, what? Wa- Bowser. Oh, Waluigi. Yeah, Waluigi, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> weird like that. Yeah, it's, they are, I've ridden one a long time ago, and not for very long because it wouldn't stay running unless it was at wide open throttle. Because <laughs> yeah. the thing was all fucked up. And I think that led to a lot of accidents as well. I know I've known a lot of people that have one in the barn that like sort of works and they're like, all right, stand back, it's gonna backfire a few times. I'm gonna have to put about half a can of starting fluid into this thing to get it going, and and uh oh, it's got shitty gas in it, like you know, we're gonna have to like ride it to the gas pump you know like pull the clutch in or like lift the back wheels and just hold it running while you pour gas into it and then we'll go back down the fire road or wherever to get back to where we're going to ride and it's always sketchy like the the machines are sketchy enough to begin with but because of the way people own them in practice, it always became way more sketchy because the vehicles would fall into disrepair. And yeah, I, the amount of times like, you know, you, you don't have to go very far. And people tell you stories of riding these things for miles with flat tires and all kinds of shit. Like it was always a disaster. Right. <clears throat> Swiggy, did you look up uh, um, pictures of people like did you Google image search? Like the very first hits 
are are like celebrities like this is wonderful we've got andre the giant riding one of these oh i need to see this picture <laughs> we've got michael jackson but oh there's like five or six pictures of andre there he is yes <laughs> look at this one. Oh my gosh yeah it's like the size of a riding lawnmower well, here's the thing. They were all like 300 to 400 pounds and people were just putting like their eight year olds on these. Yeah. So when they flipped, mm-hmm. it was always a disaster. And you'd have multiple people riding them. And yeah, it was just all around a super sketchy idea. So here, here's here's how you know they're dangerous. So. Every year, my company, we do this big thing at the rodeo and whatever. We've got our food truck out there. And we have to cart around a lot of supplies in and out of this giant rodeo that's going on for a couple weeks, right? And so we usually get a golf cart. But like a couple years ago, it looked like we weren't going to be able to get a golf cart with like, you know, storage in the back of it. And someone offered me, and it might have even been like the local Harley dealer, someone offered me the use of one of these things to haul stuff around. Now I, I just said, no, no, like just the possibility that one of these things will be like within a mile of an open container. Like, no, no, I'm not, we are not ready to take on that kind of liability. It's not have like with people around like wild, like, you know, um, uh, uh, livestock, you know, rock and roll bands, the rodeo, the horses, children, children like, uh-uh, I'd rather carry the stuff by hand because these are way too dangerous of a thing to have in that environment. So, so this thing's like the old maid, like, don't, like, no one will touch it. Yeah, yeah, like, like, so you say, only really collectors have these things as an oddity because... And and that's even weird too, because they only have them as as in the in a collection because they have memories from the seventies or whatever, just having one to tool around on. But no one actually really rides these things today because they are straight dangerous. Yeah, it's it's kind of like lawn darts. <laughs> Jerts. Yeah, this is motorcycle lawn darts. That's what these are. <laughs> I bet we can find a picture of people playing jarts and one of these playing lawn darts on a a little strike. (laughs) That would be 70s gold. In somebody's attic, there's some eight mil footage of of this occurring. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. uh, Yeah. Motorcycle lawn darts. I don't know if we're going to top that. (laughs) Should we move on to best bike? That that was pretty good. Um, let, Let me derail you guys for a sec. Okay. Uh, because it's close to your one year and it's the holidays and you guys share a birthday around this time, I brought you guys some presents. Okay. So my theme for this year, at least my personal theme, is the man cave. Okay. Because I figured you guys, if you guys are approaching your year and your gear has come up significantly, I'm very impressed by Swiggy's place. Yeah. I, I got you guys a couple of like man cave things. All to, right. to to add to all your posters of going to Coda and all this stuff. So, MotoGP, let me give you this. Okay. I'm actually handing him a Chipotle bag, <laughs> and he's pretending to unwrap it by crinkling the Chipotle bag <laughs> and here on my phone. Okay, so we got, like, what, a, a framed Honda photo here? 
It's a mirror. Oh, yeah. it's a mirror. Yeah, oh, excellent. It's a little wall mirror, and it just has the Honda logo on it. Cool. Mm. All right. And Swiggy, you've got to take your Chipotle bag here. Uh, crinkle too. the crinkle Christmas bag. Open it up for me. And Swiggy, oh, I lost it. Swiggy gets this. Oh, is this just like a, a big metal plaque? Yeah, it's. Nice. I think it's like a foot long. Ooh. What is it? It's a, a big Moto Guzzi badge. Oh, there we That's go. It's just a metal so, Moto Guzzi badge. Nice. There we yeah. go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. It's a good January present. All right. So, best bike in the world, right? And the best bike in the world this week is the 2003 Honda Veradero. This is a bike that is very unusual for me to pick as the best bike in the world. This was a pretty much uh, Europe only model. I don't think this was sold in Japan. I don't think it was sold imported to the States either. So this was Honda's big adventure bike whilst they were not making the Africa twin. This might be the greatest adventure bike ever made. So why is it the greatest? Well, it had great reviews when it came out. People loved it for all sorts of reasons. But it was ultimately sort of forgotten about because of Long Way Around. Like, the Uh BMW R1150GS didn't kill this thing. Long Way Around killed this bike. This was sort of emerging as the best one, right? So if we want to track down sort of when all these big adventure dual sport bikes started coming around, you kind of, it kind of goes back to the, the mid eighties of the Paris Dakar and the elephant bikes and all that sort of stuff. Right. And they were all kind of like 600, 650s. The, uh, the Africa twin quickly came up to 750, the early, um, super Tenere's 750s, right? And you know, the early BMWs and all these range, they're all about 750s up right until the end of the 90s. And then a couple of them started getting a little bit bigger than that. And Honda, you know, had the Africa Twin, which was a, a, a good bike, but didn't wasn't really as big a success as people remember it being. It kind of got more of a cult following after it was killed. Mm-hmm. And... They kept on with the Transalp, which was the smaller 651, and they went, okay, it's kind of like doing the SUV thing. These big, these big bikes were like, you know, we still call them sort of motorcycle SUVs to this day. And it's really fitting because this was about the time where if you think about what SUVs were doing, they kind of went from, all right, old Ford Explorers to these great big Chevy Suburban giant suv things that were in no way that great off-road compared to the old suvs and all that kind of stuff so honda goes well what do people actually want in these big bikes they want big tours but if they run into a little bit of trail or whatever they can do a little bit of that but they want a big bike that's really comfortable that's really good for long distance trips so we are going to make the best one and they did it in a really fun way. So this bike, the Veradero, rather than go with any other kind of edge configuration that anyone else was using, they lifted the motor, the 996cc 
L twin out of the super hawk. Oh, and basically put it in a trans out frame. So this is your bike. Wow. Right. So they 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 detuned it a little bit, so it got a little bit better mileage. Right. So this is so 1998. It starts this. So they basically just take the they modify the twin spar frame or whatever. So it's not really a trans out, but they just sort of like make a big brother to the trans out. Right. So they call us the I think the XL 1000 V something something. Yeah. It's a crazy name. But they put this great big comfy seat on it. The dual exhaust. They give they uh, take it down for about 112 claimed horsepower to like 94 or something. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere around like 88 gets it to the back wheel. And they keep all the torque and boost it in the mid range. They... Uh, it has the same brakes, same swing arm, I think, same uh, – uh, it's got a bigger front wheel than my bike. Um, they give it sort of all the equipment that's standard for the time, right? There's nothing really excessive on it. It did not come standard with luggage, but there were 35-liter panniers as option. And that rack on the back there was totally standard, which held a big old top box if you wanted it as well. And so when this bike came out – People were like, well, is it that great off-road? Well, no, it's only good for sort of light trail duty. But everyone raved, this is like the greatest long-distance tour ever. Like, this is supposedly one of the best factory seats, like out of the box, ever. People just love the seat on this thing. And people love the power. If you look at YouTube videos of people riding these things around, like they can't not wheelie just like go, just hitting it and going around, like, you know, pulling out of parking lots or whatever. They're just wheeling like crazy all over the place. Cause it's just got monster torque that comes in even quicker than it does on the super Hawk. Right. And so the problem was, is that over time people forgot about it because it came out with a bit of a bang. Everyone was like, Hey, this is really great. But so if you look up at some of the numbers, here's why it was successful. This was, I think about a thousand dollars cheaper than a Tenere at the time. It was like $1,500 cheaper than the BMW at the time. And it was even more cheaper than the Capinord, which is really funny because the guy that designed this bike was poached from Aprilia. And it was the guy that made the Capinord had a second pass. So this is another story of sort of recycled homework, a little Pierre Tervelange situation. I I was going to ask if any of the parts from this are like other Hondas, like like the the fairing. I've never seen a bike that guard where it has that kind of guard over the exhaust. Oh, there's plenty of them. It, it was something that definitely started in adventure bikes around mm-hmm. this time. KTM got really big into that. It, okay, around so I just like don't, ten years. So ago, I just don't know. know adventure bikes enough. But it is yeah. kind okay. of a mishmash of a lot of different bikes. Like the lower fairing at the front is very VFR. And then the the headlights. It's very VTR because it's got the same radiators and all of that, so it had to have a little shrouding yeah. there that was similar. And then it's got the the windshield and the headlight are very Africa twin, as well as you know the tank. And then yeah, around the back, it's it's kind of getting more into kind of. Um, it's a little KTM ish at the back. A little bit, yeah, and a bit. Uh, oh, what's it called? Oh, geez, what's the 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 small twin 
adventure bike, the Transalp. Uh, oh yeah, well it's in the same line as the Transalp essentially, and yeah, and it, it's sort of the spiritual successor of the Africa Twin, and this was killed when they brought the Africa Twin back. So 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 just the Africa Twin knocked this out, or what? What about Long Way Around? Maybe. Well, exactly. This this stopped selling because of Long Way Around. Everyone just, just started the, buying the, the BMW, success. Okay. right? Because is there any way this would be worse? Like, so I'm remembering like Charlie Borman like repeatedly picking up this this bike while they're like following a riverbed in Mongolia, right? Right. Would, so this bike wouldn't be quite as good for that. It'd be about the same, oh. and it was cheaper, and it made more horsepower. Like the BMW at the time was making about eighty horsepower. And I, I think was the Yamaha still close was, to a hundred. Uh, the one that was put out right when this bike was released, I read eighty, and there were some of the, but seventy eighty was about the standard, and this was like close to a hundred at the crank. So this was this was the most powerful, had the most torque, the most peak horsepower, and was the cheapest, and by all accounts had the best build quality and reliability at the time as well, and it did great right up until the two thousand and four year. Because I'm specifically like the 2003 version because it went under a bit of a redesign and they got fuel injection. So it got better fuel economy. The horsepower went down a little bit more from like 94 to like 92. Um, But it got, um, I think it had like a 6.6 like UK gallon tank, something like that. Mm -hmm. So this is like about a 240, 250 mile range on a tank, which is amazing. It's got... I just so it's just good. It's just really comfortable. It's just fantastic. So if you were using like a super hawk for day to day commuting, but you had a couple issues with it, this is the bike that fixes all of those issues, right? And the problem was is no one knew what it meant to be a Veradero rider, right? What does Veradero mean? I have no fucking clue. I should have looked that up. But <laughs> but right like after long way round, everyone all of a sudden knew what it meant to be an adventure rider, right? Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman <laughs> just put a stamp on that and totally made it an identifiable thing. It was like, oh, you get the square boxes and you get the Eurotech gear, and that's the look. That's the kind of rider that you are. And, <laughs> you know, the KTM it and... It means dry dock. I mean, maybe not. it does mean dry dock. I don't know. Veradero. Did I spell this right? No, I spelled it. Perfectly. It's Spanish. This bike was made in Spain. I know that. Honda dry dock. I, uh, apparently, this cannot be right. Apparently, it's a it's a resort town in Cuba. Aha! Uh-huh. Oh, there we go. Okay, cool. So it's like the Deauville or something like that, right? There's a lot the of off-roading and <laughs> right. So yeah, very typical for Honda, I guess. So the idea was that no one knew what it meant to be someone that rode this kind of bike, right? Because the guys that are buying the KTM adventure bikes, well, it's the KTM clubs. You sort of know what that means, right? Right. Like the Africa Twin, like I said, was a thing, but it wasn't as big a thing as we think it is now with the the new one that's come around since 2016 or 15, whenever it was, right? Now there's a little bit of an identity with Honda's adventure bike, the Africa Twin, but it's still nothing strong like the like the BMW. But mm-hmm. technically on paper, and by all accounts in user experience, this bike totally wiped the floor. I mean, just killed it on the reliability, the power, the range, the economy, the initial price, the maintenance, like I said, the comfort, 
everything was just absolutely, this was the best one. Honda came out of the gates, had this thing, and would probably be the best-selling line today, and we'd be able to get these in the States, except long way round. The greatest decision BMW ever made. Yeah, there's yeah. probably in the... These are nice looking, actually. Yeah, but in the, if you go to the first episode of Long Way Round, they, you'd probably know if they even had Honda on the phone. I don't remember. No, they didn't. It no. was just they wanted KTM. KTM shot them down. BMW came up. That was mm. it. So, yeah. So this is a total diamond in the rough bike. And you can get these for great money now because they don't have the reputation of the R1200 or whatever bike, right? Well, I never, I didn't even know what this was until I'd never heard Veradero before. Right. Until 15 <laughs> so minutes like, ago. Like DeVille. Yeah. <laughs> why, why name it after a town in Cuba? Like why? I don't know. Well, here's the thing. This was a bike for the European market. And when you think about unusual bike names that we don't think twice about now, the, the the American market has just is totally fine with the super Tenere. Even though initially there wasn't even a regular Tenere, people weren't even sure how to say Tenere, but now it's a bike that's been around and it's a thing. You just say, oh yeah, super Tenere, super 10, whatever. Right. But it's weird. No one knows what it means or whatever. Just as long as something exists long enough, it becomes a thing and you're comfortable saying it. There's been all sorts of insane names that Honda's come up with over the years. Well, you also have to keep in mind that a lot of the Japanese manufacturers, when they're trying to come up with these names for the Western market, they're all, they're often playing the telephone game with Western uh, marketing agencies. And that's how we come up with names like the Bergman. Right. Exactly. And arguably DeVille and Veradero are just one notch above Bergman. <laughs> yeah. And if you think, you know, the Transalp is a name that makes sense. And even though it's words that we're familiar with, I mean, Africa Twin, just if you'd never heard of the bike or knew anything about it, would seem like an insane thing to name a motorcycle, right? The Africa Twin, what does that mean? Well, we know it means it's a twin-cylinder adventure bike, but to just anyone, that just sounds like a complete non-sequitur, right? Right. So, you know, the name, yes, is weird, but if this bike had been a really big success for a long time and had been imported here, by now it just wouldn't even seem like a strange name. So I, I don't hold the name against it, but looking up reviews of this bike, everyone at the time was like, this thing's great. This thing has power that we didn't expect. This thing is really satisfying. I only found one negative, one negative thing on it, which was by MCN, who about two years ago did a retrospective look at it and knocked it for suspension they didn't like. Because Ugh. MCN apparently hates all suspension that's ever been created. And two said... Oh, it never really lived up to the hype that, let's say, the BMW R1200GS did. Those are the only things they could complain about it. This is MCN, who will complain about anything that's not a MotoGP bike. And then here we go. That's all they can complain about this bike. I mean, that's enough endorsement right there. So if you can find one of these things in Europe right now, you can get it for, like, no money. Mm. It's a badass engine. 
and it's loads of fun. It handles just fine. It's ridiculously comfortable, has all the long range. It is the diamond in the rough, super sweet buy if you want to get into adventure bikes in Europe right now. It sounds like it suffered the same fate that the the Futura did. Yeah, a Shifted little Shifted a little over to the adventure market, but mm-hmm. it's kind of the same deal where, yeah, something comes out and just totally captivates everyone's attention and then there's all these other great bikes out there but there's that one cultural moment that just stole the spotlight and i think weirdly now that the the bmw look has become such a thing this is a way to sort of go well i'm gonna get an adventure bike i'm gonna do the adventure bike thing but I get to like kind of ride a different ride if I get one of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a way to have a bike that's such a sort of cookie cutter, I'm going to make assumptions about you from a mile away sort of bike. But all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. No, that's not a tenant. What is that guy on? Wait, what's go? What's he riding here? It's, it's a way to sort of defy the genre, but excel in the genre, right? So if you're, if you're sort of a bit of a maverick, right? Yeah. This is for you right now. I think so. And I'm just a big Honda fanboy and it's got my all time favorite engine in it. So It'll it's a win win for me until the end of time. Like exactly. Honda. Yep. Part support for the end of time. And how much off road do you really need it to do? You know, does it have a static transmission? Or... Oh, the hydrostatic. <laughs> hydrostatic. No. no, this is good old chain drive. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, when was that? Oh, three. Yeah. So oh, three is the one that you want. The oh, three to like oh. 13 or 14 whatever it was when they killed it because that's when you get the six-speed gearbox and the fuel injection which really helps out with the fuel economy and some other things overall with it and the display gets upgraded a little bit as well Um, but they're all fantastic the brakes are great it's it's all great the link brake system people said worked well everything about it honda just nailed it's just they didn't get a uh, tv series made about it so there we go. Honda Veradero, best bike in the world this week. You've convinced me. All right, let's take a break. All right, now we're back for our main topic of this podcast, which is going to be motorcycle crime, moto crime. I'm so excited about this. So like a week or two ago, I said like, hey, Swiggy, we got to do motorcycle crime. So let's let's find some stuff. And we've discovered some interesting things. It seems that the gravitational center of motorcycle related crime is London. Well, before we before we get to that, I have some topical news. OK. So Mike knows mm-hmm. this, yeah, but know. you don't know yet. Totally unplanned. The Ebco has been stolen. Are you shitting me? No. Oh my god! Like from from your truck, from the parking space, from where? From the truck. Oh yeah, my god! It went down like this. I I knocked on your door. You're like, oh well, we can't because I came to pick up my key. And he's like, I got stuff to do. We can't hang out much, but come check out my my uh, little scooter. I'm like, yeah, I want to see this thing. And we go downstairs, and there's tail flaps hanging open. All the ratchet straps are slashed. Oh, my God. So, wait, have you filled a report, all that stuff? Yeah, I did all that today. 
okay, man. Oh gosh. This, okay. You just blindsided me with this. Now you didn't have the GPS thing on it, like hooked up yet. Did you? No, they haven't enabled that yet. Well, I won't go into too much about what I'm doing about it since this will drop before the, the end of the period at which my insurance will kick in. Uh huh. So we won't say anything about what we're doing about it other than, yeah, file a police report and a claim. Um, and it kind of sucks. And I was like, I was kind of stunned yesterday. And today I kind of like had a seething rage about the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, you handled it very well at the time. I was you kind can, of out of it at the time. Uh, but, but now I've kind of come to this place where thankfully it's insured yeah and it's gonna suck because now i have to do a whole bunch of my motorcycle has been stolen homework Mm -hmm. and fill out a whole bunch of shit and i gotta wait 15 days and either it'll show up or i get the 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 check but i've kind of come to this place because i've seen so many people like talk about their bikes getting stolen and how pissed they were and like been super bitter about it but I've got the insurance. It sucks a little bit, but I plan for it. You know, I got the insurance. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not out six grand. And, you know, yeah, person who sold's a piece of shit. But am I going to carry that with me all the time? Am I going to let this, like, just ruin my enjoyment of motorcycles? Am I going to, like, get another Ubco and then think about the one that was stolen all the time? Or get another bike and think... You know, as I hand the money over for it, like, oh, this should have been the Ubco. Could have still had that bike. You know, am I going to carry that with me? Like, it doesn't make sense to let that anger just, like, start ruining my enjoyment of motorcycling. Yeah, but... Now, if we find the guy, you can get fucked. Yeah. Pressing charges to the fullest fullest extent I can. But but I'm going to okay. do it with a smile on my face. Okay. So. It's a healthy attitude. Here's a hilarious story about some motorcycles being stolen. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this upcode being stolen in, in a minute here. Because, yeah. So, anyway. Uh, yeah, it, it turns out that London is just the gravitational center of all crimes related to motorcycles. And it seems... Far and away, looking at whatever numbers I can find, which are all pretty sketchy, that motorcycle theft is far and away the biggest crime associated with motorcycles in general, right? London's a big motorcycle commuting kind of town. mm -hmm. There's a lot of bikes. Well, yeah, it's old. It's a medieval town. It's got medieval roads for horse and cart. And lane splitting is legal. So if you actually want to get somewhere on a regular basis, two wheels is the way to go. Oh, yeah. Medieval. It's true. If you take a London bus tour, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. there's crazy stuff that the buses cannot even begin to fit down. But You know, they did make a Grand Theft Auto London edition. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it turns out modern day London is not far off of that. So I got a story here from 2012. This is off uh, the BBC website. 
Robbers armed with axes and bats rode motorbikes into an indoor shopping center in North London and raided a jewelry store. So, <laughs> so it looks like um, five guys on three bikes, or they could be women, they were all totally geared up, stole three motorcycles. It looks like a, uh, a uh, an R6 a uh, speed triple and something else. They rode these into the mall, took them up the escalator, rode right up to the jewelry <laughs> store, pulled out their axes and bats, broke every piece of glass in the place while two of them just wielded axes and bats at the store owner and general public. So this was well, during the daytime. Oh yeah. During mall operating hours, just <laughs> rode in. <laughs> yeah. And wow. so, um, so they loot all the jewelry are general dicks to everybody. Just threatening old ladies with axes and shit. They were in and out in a few minutes. There's all kinds of footage of this happening. People filming it with their phones or on security cameras and everything, but they don't care. They're completely geared up and everything. Their faces aren't showing or whatever. And of course they don't care about the license plates on the bikes because they're stolen bikes. And then, yeah, they make off with all the loot, ride down the stairs <laughs> and make an escape. And then a few hours later, they just ditched the bikes at a park somewhere. They probably had a getaway driver and they were gone never to be caught. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the good news is, is the bikes are recovered and returned to their owners. Oh, thank God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not like so that's a happy ending to the story. Right. So I, I decided to start with this because this really incorporates every single aspect of motorcycle crime all into one story here. We've got the theft. We've got of the bikes, but then the, the committing of another crime after that, right? We've got people using weapons like old school, 1950s <laughs> biker gang style, right? <laughs> we've got, we've got motorcycle gang sort of here. Cause it's a group of people doing this all together. And then we've got this amazing, like, like movie heist scenario, <laughs> right? <laughs> like this really, this is, and, and then the people get their bikes back in the end. So as far as the motorcycle crime story, this is everything you want. And it, it's, uh, it also brings in this other thing too, where as it's happening, a lot of people are like, find just somehow that the reason like that they reason that because they're on bikes, somehow, the story is worse, right? Which brings in this weird thing here that these people are not really motorcyclists. They're just criminals more than they're motorcyclists, yeah. kind of creating a bad name for bikers, mm -hmm. which is interesting because it's not these bikes owners that are doing this. So there's all these interviews from people that are just, oh, so slack jawed. And they're like, oh, it's so brazen and awful. And, you know, and they were on bikes and blah, 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 blah. And it, it's really weird. And this is sort of a theme that kept popping up again and again and again as I looked into all of this. There's another hilarious story, I think from 2016, some guys in like, like North Carolina. I can't remember exactly where it is. I'll have to look it up here. They steal a bike or whatever. <laughs> And they go to someone's house while they knew they were away and they steal a big TV from their patio, like a 52 inch TV. 
Okay. And they both make the escape on the same Harley Sportster. So the guy on the back is holding this <laughs> gigantic TV. And what's really crazy about this one is the bike's not recovered and no one ever finds the criminals. Yet on the local news reporting, like the, the news reporters like sketch out this like six mile trail of where people saw these guys riding with this TV. Yet somehow the police were not able to track them down. Even though, like, it was not hard to spot these guys holding this giant. So even if you're holding a giant 52-inch TV, apparently a motorcycle is a great getaway vehicle. It's super weird. So y- you do get these um, the- this thing happening where most motorcycle crime, if it's not the theft of the bike, it's someone stealing the bike to commit a crime with it. And then this brings us into the London scooter situation. I think you've got some things to say about this, Swiggy. The pictures are awesome of, of this. Um, oh, this, they're, they're the glorious. armed robbers on the, yeah. on the jewelry heist. Oh, it, it's magic. I'm obsessed with it. So motorcycle crime, both theft of motorcycles and primarily scooters and crimes committed whilst on scooters over the past few years had been, going up dramatically in london oh yeah london is about a sixth of the population maybe a fourth you know somewhere between a fourth and a fifth of the population of the uk mm-hmm. and it makes up 60 percent of motorcycle crime in the uk oh yeah and again it's because there's all these different winding narrow roads there's not a lot of room there's tons of traffic and you can hop curbs, you can split lanes. Unless somebody else is behind you on a scooter or a supermoto, they're just not going to catch you. Right. And, you know, wearing a full face helmet to conceal your identity is a totally innocuous thing until you commit a crime. So for the most part, you can just get away with it. And, you know, if you don't have a license plate, how is a cop going to catch you to call you on it? Right. So... There's been all sorts of different crimes that are have become fairly common. Uh, one is just swiping smartphones out of people's hands. This is crazy. They call it apple picking. Yeah, <laughs> and you just drive, you just ride along, and somebody's waiting at the at the crosswalk with their phone out, and as you're coming by, and their head's buried in their phone, you got two people on the bike, person on the back just snatches the phone out of their hand while they're going along. Supposedly there have been reports of individuals like getting 30 phones in an hour doing this. Wow. Yeah, and the scooters just go right up on the sidewalk and all kinds of crazy shit. They are brazen. And, of course, they'll use scooters to get around in the act of trying to steal another scooter whilst on a stolen scooter. <sighs> Yeah. What do they do with the first scooter? Well, no, they they go two up on the scooter, on the first scooter, and then they get the second scooter. Uh, Yeah, or you get guys riding around. They'll start with, like, four guys on a couple scooters, and they go out, and they'll they'll get one, and they'll just, like, break the wheel lock, and they'll just push the bike. They'll get it in neutral or whatever, and they just, you know, do the the MotoGP thing. They they get out their, um, their right foot 
and they put it on the back of the of the passenger peg, oh, and yeah. they just push the bike along. So apparently, like, I've seen a whole bunch of British motovloggers riding around complaining about these this scooter theft problem and as they're doing it they come across like a motorcycle thief like in action stealing a bike and they'll stop and be like hey is that your bike what are you doing and they just tell them to fuck off or they come up to them with a bat or a knife or some shit or a jar of acid or jar of acid yeah it's crazy and, and the majority of these motorcycle criminals seem to be teens yeah. They're like 13 oh, yeah, to sure. 17. So the new thing seems to be like the easy crime is, you know, if they got to prove something to their friends or whatever, they go out and steal a scooter and then do something else with that. So they'll do something like this, this, um, this, uh, jewelry heist in the mall, whatever. They'll just go up to a shop, a group of them, break the windows and then make their getaway on the stolen scooters. So within London, like scooter crime has been climbing had been climbing drastically year on year something like 30 percent year on year for a few years it went absolutely apeshit and the police kind of felt they were hamstrung and couldn't do anything about it because there's all these you know there's all these different chase laws that are heavily enforced in the uk that we don't really have here in the u.s you know if you one of the things is they'll they'll call off a chase if they're chasing somebody who's on a scooter and they're not wearing a helmet. They'll just say, oh, it's too dangerous. We're going to call off the chase. Or if they go through like a school zone or something. But recently, kind of in the last, you know, you know, six to 12 months, they've gotten support from the government to, to just say, you know, enough's enough. If you need to, you know, side, you need, if you need to uh, pit maneuver a bike, and the guy is not wearing a helmet, we'll back you up. You can go for it. So they actually released video of them taking out criminals on scooters. Oh. And Scotland pull- Yard released this. It's basically a greatest clips of the police hitting scooters with their cars. <laughs> it's wonderful. Oh, gosh. Oh, that one's good where he slides out. I think this next one's my favorite, the black and white one, where the guy goes over the hood. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna definitely link this video into the into the show notes. Right. So because it's oh, been a God. trend for so long that oh, if we just take our helmet off and we drive away, they'll they'll stop chasing us or they won't stop they won't come after us if we do something too dangerous. Scotland Yard released this video and said, Oh yes, we will. Yeah. <laughs> bring it <laughs> and what i love about this is the general public is so fed up there's been zero pushback about this everybody is on board everyone is totally on board because apparently another big thing with these motors motorcycle like um thieving kids is there also a lot of there's a lot of crossover with knife gangs uh-huh. So it's a big thing because, you know, guns yeah, aren't a big yeah. thing in the UK. So they're like, oh, we'll just go stab each other, right? Which <laughs> some people might claim is like a great reason to bring guns to the UK. But I argue, well, no, they would just be shooting each other instead. And whilst knife fights are not great at all, 
it's definitely better than just public shootings. So there's that. But, you know, these police have, you know, not had to resort to shooting these criminals. They just hit them with their fucking cars. <laughs> how, did you, how did you describe? So you, the, those videos of the chase made me think of your parents' house in Bishop Stortford. And didn't you describe, like, dart people? And, like, there is a, like, uh, like, there was a dart championship bar down the road from you. And you were like, this is the place where people really care about darts. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. It's a weird thing about, um, bar games in the UK chavs or generally the, the lower class of, of people in Europe in general really only like to play games in bars where the game pieces can be used as weapons. (laughs) (laughs) That was, (laughs) And but the funny thing is, is they very rarely do use them as weapons. I can't really think of a time I've heard of someone using a dart to attack someone else at a pub in the UK. I mean, first of all, you would think twice about it because you would get banned from your local for life and you would never be able to play darts again. <laughs> so people tend to not fuck things up too bad. Like, you know, you can kind of get kicked out of bars here in the States and then like quietly start going back six months later it does not work that way at local pubs in the uk if you get 86 you're fucking 86 forever and if you come walking in someone will tell the barman be like hey hey it's that guy you better get him the fuck out of here so they tend to actually kind of keep it pretty civil inside the pub for the most part i mean yeah you get bar fights and things and whatever but it's not it's not the loosey-goosiness that it is here so no one's going to knock over a pub because it's full of weapons, <laughs> darts. And... No, 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 no. But, you know, what? like this, this London scooter thing and the knife gangs and everything is that, you know, this was, first of all, a big problem for people just getting their scooter stolen, which is their means of transportation, which is a huge yeah, issue yeah. just in and of itself to begin with, because... I think it was something that they were reporting like 450 thereabout somewhere per week of these things being stolen and crimes committed on them every week in London. At one point it got up to that high, right? That's a lot constantly, right? I mean, divide that by seven. That's like how many per day, right? There were like, you know, police units created just to try to like tackle this, but how do you, Right. Yeah. How do you respond to sixty incidents a day? Right. And and the, they can disappear down back alleys and everything. And the general public doesn't want to get involved because these kids will just come at them with knives and things. So it got to this boiling point that the police went, "All right, we're just going to start hitting you. <laughs> There's not much like else we can do." Right. Well, they have gone. They have done a couple other things. <clears throat> Uh, I believe they are getting a bunch of like supermoto bikes and a lot of narrow bikes mm. specifically designed for scooter chases. Imagine being that cop. A job would be awesome. I would love to be that cop, yeah. And then um, the other thing they've been doing, which is pretty clever, is they've now got these um, UV sprays. Yeah, I heard about this. And they call them like DNA sprays. I don't think it's an, anything actually organic. But every spray is, um, it's ultraviolet, it, or it glows under an ultraviolet oh, light. Yeah. And it's also um, 
chemically signatured back to the spray can it came from. Uh-huh. That's cool. So now you can chase somebody down, and as long as you can just tag them, you know, you can go around, you can go around at whenever time afterwards and just go like scan bike racks with a UV light, find one, sample it, match it back to the chase earlier, and you can oh, catch cool. the person. So you don't need a license plate or a face to be able to identify the bike anymore, yeah. as long as you can tag it. Yeah, and I think they've also done, I mean, they're, they're doing a bunch of things like computer software, trying to figure out where they're being stolen the most, where they're getting taken to the most and everything. And of course, there's all these underground garages where they're chopping these bikes up and putting them back together and selling parts and just straight up reselling the bikes illegally and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's absolutely bananas. But I do think there's this weird thing happening here where in the States, scooters are basically discounted because they don't have much of a cool factor. There's not a whole lot of danger surrounding the image of the scooter. And I feel like, is there a way to sort of harness this bad boy image to boost scooter sales in America? <laughs> right? Because it turns out the biggest, baddest motorcycle criminals are 15-year-olds on scooters in London. Is there a way to tap into this to sort of like bring up the image of scooter? Like, you know, like I, I feel like scooters wouldn't suffer much from just, just a little bit of bad boy in the yeah. U.S., right? We, we need a Fast and the Furious for scooters right with, yeah with with a little torque thrown in yeah i don't know what you'd call that movie just very little torque <laughs> like yeah how can you work cvt into a cool title i don't know <laughs> but the, i maybe twist and go is the name of the movie but <laughs> there'll be something there's, there's got to be something though because yeah scooters don't have this like sissy repu- reputation in fact there are whole uh motors like scooter motorcycle gangs in london that aren't necessarily criminals they just love to get their 150 scooters around and wheelie them all over the place and I mean, you know, I, I guess we have to sort of bring up uh, 12 O'Clock Boys. Have you guys seen that? Mm. Oh, it's on Netflix or Hulu. I can't Does remember Does it which. involve Vespas and 30 headlights? So 12 O'Clock Boys is this documentary set in, um, it's not Detroit. Is it Pittsburgh even maybe? Mm. It's somewhere in Pennsylvania, I think. Pennsylvania or Ohio. Oh, wait. No, are you talking about the one in, uh, oh, fuck. What city is the wire in? Yeah, yeah, it's in the yeah. What's that city? Um, anyway, Baltimore. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, Baltimore. It's Baltimore, right? So there's this like John Waters country, right? There's these poor neighborhoods, and there's all these kids, and they steal dirt bikes, and they go around just doing wheelies all over the place, and like this is their thing, and they'll shut down traffic and cause huge disturbance and whatever. And there's a documentary about it called Twelve O'clock Twelve O'clock Boys, which is really a great documentary you should watch it so there's sort of a british version of this but rather than just a bunch of kids in t-shirts and umbro shorts and and uh whatever these guys you know they get their helmets and they get their the track suits and it's all about looking a certain way and having a certain image and they get their sports scooters and they do wheelies all over the place and that seems to be the extent of the trouble that they get up to and 
they i think they call themselves like you know like wheels up uk or something this is a, this is a great little bbc short documentary about it which is which is wonderful i highly recommend it and so there's a sort of distinction though of these guys that are just out being sort of hooligans and having fun which is a sort of motorcycle crime in and of itself but it's relatively harmless and i sort of support it in a way i mean reference the kajiva super city best bike in the world segments right right and then there's these people who really aren't motorcyclists but bikes only really come into their lifestyle as a means of getting social status through creating crimes to work their way up a sort of beginning rung of a criminal hierarchy right mm. but the problem is it gets associated with motorcycles right so you know, besides cops hitting people on scooters with their cars and spray painting them, I there's not a real clear answer to how this gets solved because scooters are ridiculously easy to steal. There really is no way you can stop it. Now, the city of London is putting in apparently a whole bunch of just hooks cemented into the ground to chain your bikes too, but these guys go around with bolt cutters that go around with grinders and everything. There's, there's all sorts of videos of them, you know, breaking wheel locks and all kinds of crazy things. There's doesn't seem to be much you can do to stop your bike from being stolen. If a professional motorcycle thief wants to take it. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know the answer to that one. I mean, the same could be said of having your house broken into. I mean, there's only so much you can do to prevent a determined criminal. You know, this they, is they're, correct. They're going to get it. Right. And and, and so in, in looking up all this motorcycle crime stuff, I was going through those things where like, oh, you know, confessions of a bike thief and everything. And again and again, it comes down to there's really nothing you can do except possibly have some sort of GPS thing on it that's really well hidden that's the kind of thing they're not looking for um one story that i came into here let me look it up here just real quick okay here we go so this this is recent this is from july 2018 uh this is from top speed it says yeah here you know on average 65 bikes stolen per day and the latest reported have been the folks at zero motorcycles and the irony is that the bikes were stolen from the back of a transporter van while they were on theft tracking tests. <laughs> so Zero um, has had this thing going where they were partnering with this other company to get this GPS anti-theft stuff put on their bikes. So they brought these bikes into London. And hours after this stuff was installed on the bikes, they were parked in a van and the bikes were stolen like an hour later <laughs> and then re recovered in another hour. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. So if you have a zero motorcycle with this stuff in it, that might actually be a good way to like recover your bike, but you still yeah. can't really stop it from being stolen in the first place, yeah. which is the big problem. And you know, what we haven't mentioned in this episode yet, Swiggy, is that not only have you had your electric bike stolen, but you had a dirt bike stolen before that, what, like about a year ago, year and a half ago? It was like two and a half years ago. No, it's got to be more than that. No, this was, 
at least two and a half years ago. Was it stolen here? Yes. So same place you live. In fairness, that was almost kind of doing me a favor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We put way too much work into getting that bike running. I thought you just wanted to get rid of that. I didn't know it was stolen. No, that was stolen. Oh, God. Right. So there's no lock you can really put on your bike that can't be broken pretty easily and quickly by a determined thief. Like, at best, you're going to stop an opportunist, really. And, you know, looking at these videos of guys stealing bikes all over the place in London, like, they can break the ignition on these things quick. They can break the steering lock super. Apparently, they just laugh at steering locks. They just give it a yank and the wheels go straight and they don't give a shit. And there's all sorts of stuff that they know how to do super quick. So it's kind of alarming when you look at it, how easily your bike can be stolen and short of locking it up in your garage, there's not much you can do, but I found a story from just this year, just months ago, someone in Greeley, Colorado, having two bikes stolen out of their garage, right? Whoa. Yeah. Now the bikes were recovered, you know, awesome, but you know, it was while they were at home, like asleep, right? And they checked the security camera and saw some people leaving with them. Sure enough, like, you know, hours later when they noticed they were gone. But like, what do you do, right? It's crazy. And I think like, what are they doing with these bikes, right? And they're chopping them up and everything. And apparently this uh, this um, theft out of Greeley, they found that these guys had stolen a bunch of bikes, some of which hadn't been reported and yeah, they had a whole chop shop operation thing wow. going. So people will kind of steal chop shopping Greeley. Yeah, whatever, just to chop these bikes up and do whatever they're doing. And you know, like I wonder, like how many parts am I looking at on eBay that are from stolen bikes and all this crazy nonsense? It's terrible. I don't know. I I wish I had like some sort of like sage advice on how to not have your motorcycle stolen. But it, what it really comes down to is there's just not a good way. Well, I don't have great advice, but I do have this. Cameras, or even fake cameras. Like, when I'm out and about, this doesn't apply perfectly, but when I'm out and about on my bike, I actually have this camera rig that I put on top of my helmet, and I will ride with it, even if the thing's not turned on, because it just affects the traffic around me, you know? Yeah. So, so you're going to have that same, you know, like walking into a into a department store, and seeing the camera, you're going to have that effect if you can somehow put a camera. Like if like if you can have camera gear maybe in your truck, you can still, and they see that stuff, then, I mean, they're still, you know, they might still wear the balaclava or whatever. But Well, one thing I will say is if you want to lower motorcycle crime in general, I do feel you have a moral obligation to report your motorcycle as stolen because if if you don't then the best chance of it ever being found is when the police bust Mm. down some doors because another motorcycle was reported stolen and you can't you can't do anything to help basically by allowing your bike to get stolen unreported you make it less of a priority for police. Mm-hmm. 
It doesn't get counted in the the statistics. And most of these bikes are all going to the same place. So police get more leads going to the same place. Mm -hmm. That's more opportunities for other people's bikes to be recovered as well. Yeah. So if your bike is stolen, even if it's not, even if you don't have insurance and you think there's no chance of getting it back, report it as stolen if it is stolen. So, Peter, did you watch that uh, Bokuzoku documentary? I did not No, yet. I, I thought that that was the reason why you wanted to talk about motorcycle crime. We should it's, talk about the, the Yakuza yeah. and Bosuzuku. How did I not think yeah. to research this? So you guys also lived in Japan. Yes. But, um, no, I watched about uh, three weeks ago. So I, I went up to Greeley because you helped me with a fish tank for my kids because you've got this awesome fish tank. And I, I started playing this video that was like foot it's like an hour and 40 minutes for me it was very calming like background footage of like this 1980s motorcycle gang driving around japan and they are a very unique entity in japan uh and there's a 30 minute vice documentary that i also watched which is like actually talking the other one is just like footage of people like yelling at each other well, yeah, give us the breakdown on these gangs because I don't know too much about them. Well, they've been around for like uh, for so they started up around the fifties, uh-huh. and they were just, I mean, they were like biker gangs in any country. They get together, they ride around. There was like like a thin veil between them and the actual yakuza. Japan considered them like a sort of a mafia crime group that was just sort of like a of a, a uh, um like a. Uh, I'm I'm forgetting the word, but like a uh, just just like almost mafia, but not mafia and, adjacent. Yeah, mafia adjacent. Yeah, and um, like definitely sort of a semi-criminal group. <laughs> You're right. And but uh, and so they so they're kids. They're mostly same age group you were describing in London, uh, but they're not really stealing bikes. They're committing other crimes, mostly against each other, that they they have turf battles, but they carry around the weapons. So if you've seen the movie Akira, like, I'm pretty sure that the creator of Akira watched this video on Japanese TV because there's a guy dressed up like a clown, like he has this clown face, and there's people carrying baseball bats, and which they probably do in any country, but... um but what makes it unique in Japan is they've they took what at the time was um, was British inspired and American inspired like motorcycle styling where right. they started to put on these fairings. But then it became this very uniquely Japanese thing where the like the higher the the back seat, the cooler it was. So you've got these they, they you've got these custom back seats that are like go up to to the height of your neck, you know, and um and I think they kind of look like old like like you could imagine Japanese cavalry. Like it kind of looks like your horse. You're riding around with a flag sticking up out of the back or something. And they ride around and they just rev. And they would get to and the, the biggest thing about them was the numbers. And they would because they would group together, they would chop off their pipes. So they were like loud as hell. And they'd they just rev around and and like intentionally just like drop gear and rev up, and they would uh, um, 
uh, it was, I, I don't remember the exact year, but there is a precise law that was passed that just totally killed these gangs, where it was just like allowed total police freedom to break up any motorcycle group that looked suspicious. So the only surviving members of this, and, th- and this was, we're talking within the last probably eight or nine years that this happened. Um, so the, the, so Bo Suzoku is just uh, considered dead. And the only people who are like Bo Suzoku chiefs of gangs, like they technically have members, but they're just riding around by themselves. Hmm. So and, they can still have the bikes. They just, when they're in groups, they get targeted so quickly they can't get yeah, anything done. Exactly. It's like like they're just immediately like in jail if they like get together and ride. I, I don't know what the law is. Hmm. What what kind of crimes were they committing, if any? Mostly against each other. Um, I mean, they would because they were young kids. They would end up like leading into mafia type stuff, okay. but. I didn't hear a lot of reports. I mean, these are the two, both these documentaries I mentioned, I mean, one's just footage, but the Vice documentary is up on YouTube. Um, And they talk quite a lot about it. Mostly, I just remember them beating up other gang members. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of leads into American motorcycle gangs, because you can't talk about motorcycle crime without bringing up the Hells Angels, right? Mm -hmm. So... It seems that the FBI has a special category for four motorcycle clubs in general. And so these are the official outlaw motorcycle gangs as designated by the FBI. And they are the Hells Angels, the Pagans, the Outlaws, and the Banditos. Well, these are these are kind of old FBI files. I imagine the Mongols and a few others have them as well now. So, yeah, apparently uh, California considers the Mongols in this group as well. But nationally, the FBI is about these big four. And everyone else is probably just in some way affiliated with these four, kind of working underneath them or something or whatever. And... They it's weird because I don't understand why they're why regular just gang stuff doesn't apply to them. But somehow there's something about the way they have their clubs that they're not just recognized as outright criminal organizations. It's a weird area of the law. So, you know, they ride around, they identify themselves, but they can't just be picked up just for wearing the patches even though it's a group that's known to do criminal activity, right? Mm-hmm. And um, basically, yeah, what they're always trying to get them with is um, RICO stuff, which stands for like racketeering, intimidation, something else in organization, whatever. Yeah, basically, they, they, they're up to no good, and it's well documented that they're sort of up to no good in general. But... It's not really – I think one of the reasons that they kind of continue to exist is they're not really that big of a deal. Yeah. If you kind of – if you go back and look throughout the you know the historical record of what they've done over the past, what is it, 70 years? Right. It's not really all that bad as far as gangs go, as far as criminal enterprise goes – it's kind of milk toast. Yeah, I, I was trying to look up what has been significant biker gang 
crime up in the area I live in. And the only thing I could find was a couple years ago, some guy got roughed up in a bathroom at a tilted kilt because someone didn't like the way he was looking at their girlfriend. And then like two days later, the biker who'd had some warrants for some other things as well, just turned himself in. And that was kind of it. Right. Like there was, there was a lot more public discussion amongst gun enthusiasts saying this was a great reason to open carry than there was mention of the actual fact that it was a motorcycle gang or crime related to bikes or whatever. If this even is a motorcycle crime, right? Someone got roughed up in a bathroom at a bar, like whatever happens all the time, right? I, I can't think of much really going on. I mean, every once in a while, like the bar I go to, like some Mongols will come in and whatever, and they'll just like, dominate the pool table that's kind really? of the extent of it like i don't really know it, like what else is it doesn't seem to be i i don't know like if, if all you knew about bikers was watching sons of anarchy you'd think like holy crap someone's got to put a stop to this nonsense and it, it was weird because it seems that like the biggest trouble they get up to is selling drugs which is kind of like a big whoop, right? A lot of people sell drugs. This isn't a this isn't an area that motorcycle gangs have cornered. Right. Yeah. So it's guys that have bikes that sell drugs. Okay. And I was even reading the things so I thought, well, I've got to talk about Sons of Anarchy and the the writer of um Sons of Anarchy was um, doing some research to make the show or whatever. And he said, I can't have them selling meth because it's too cliche. <laughs> so I, so he came up with, okay, I'll have them sell guns because people are all in support of guns, right? That's how we can make these guys sort of good guys, right? Oh, they're not bad guys. They're just selling guns, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But I mean, think about how different that show would have been if they were just dealing meth, right? It really wouldn't have gained much traction. If it was closer to the reality, people would have been turned off by it. Because a lot of people, you know, meth has like touched their lives in some point at, you know, in this day and age. If, you know, if you've never seen it directly, you know, someone who has and who it's affected, right? You know, but guns, it's like, well, freedom, guns, motorcycles, freedom, guns, eagles, guns, freedom. Like, awesome, right? And it just sort of gains traction. So I don't know how many bikers might actually be just be selling guns or whatever, but I don't know. Like guns are kind of everywhere. I yeah, I, I shouldn't, but like my opinion is like whatever. You know, someone will sell them. And it how how much worse can a biker gang selling guns be than these just gun expos you see everywhere, where you can just yeah. walk in and buy anything, right? Yeah. So I think. The reality of most motorcycle gangs, especially something huge like the Hells Angels, is probably 85% of them just have normal jobs and families. You know, they're dentists. And then maybe another, you know, 13% will sell some weed on the side. And, you know, start a bar fight every once in a while and and try to appear tough. But, you know, the majority are just kind of trying to 
get some of that attitude to rub off on them. Mm-hmm. And then maybe 1%, and it may even be like a quarter of a percent, are actual hardened criminals. And they're kind of all getting lost in the mix of the whole club. Yeah, it's weird too, because if if your goal is to try to like carry out a bunch of crime as a lifestyle advertising that you're doing that everywhere you ride isn't a real great way to get that done. Right. So yeah, the whole thing of like biker gangs all being criminals doesn't hold a lot of water for me because it's like, well, okay. Even these four clubs that have been, you know, by the FBI designated, especially bad. It's not like they're just out riding and the police pull them over and go, Hey, you're in a known gang, I'm going to search you, right? Which, if you're in any other kind of gang, is totally legal, right? If you're a blood or a crip or whatever, the police can just stop you and search you because you just having the colors and being a gang member is suspicion because you're in a gang. But apparently this isn't legit for bikers, and I'm not really sure why. It must only be because because it's not that big of a deal like it's kind of hyped up to be more than it really is yeah it's the only thing that makes logical sense to me so i'm on the uh outlaw motorcycle club wikipedia and it says that it's the outlaw motorcycle gangs collect one billion in illegal income annually mostly through drug dealing trafficking extortion and fighting over territory but there's this one thing that I don't know enough about to to jump into, but there's this thing called the Quebec Bike War in Canada. It, and I don't know about this. <laughs> so we're going to have to do more research on this. But it was like 150 murders, a car bomb, 84 bombings, and 130 cases of arson. That sounds pretty serious. Well, when was this? Uh, Let's see. There's a whole page on the Quebec bike war. Uh, it began in 1994 and went through 2002. Hmm. We might have to come back on this one. So, well, that that is sort of a thing. So you were mentioning, like, you know, the Bo Suzuku and, um, you know, now we're talking about these Canadian bikers. Is there sort of a thing where people aren't, you know, Hell's Angels from California in the 50s or 60s or whatever. They're not from the heyday, so they have to sort of over-represent, right? Are the most hardcore bikers not Hell's Angels in America? Are they other people, other places, thinking there's this thing they really have to live up to, even though what they're living up to might not necessarily be that big of a deal? I mean, a billion dollars in drug, you know, sounds like a lot, but... How much in dollars is just coming in from Mexico, right? Probably a lot more. Yeah. And they're probably just buying some of these drugs from what's coming in from Mexico, right? You would have to assume. I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of anything in this conversation, (laughs) but it is interesting to kind of look at what constitutes, you know, the majority of motorcycle crime that's actually happening because I think people – sort of loosely do connect crime and motorcycle a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And it's overall not a great thing. 
But I guess if I have to think of one little thing that's come out of this is, is there a way to harness the power of that bad boy scooter London image to boost sales here? There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. Is there going to be some sort of fashion that comes out of it that people riding scooters here can do? We need the equivalent. We need like the equivalent of Harley Davidson skulls. Four scooters. Four scooters. Right. Mm. Yeah. So these guys won't be going around committing any crimes, but they can sort of like lift up the image a little bit so they can feel a little oh, better. Maybe it'll just be like a a mason jar of clear liquid, like holstered <laughs> next to the, <laughs> the steering stock. Oh, Swiggy, you were gonna um you were going to tell me a little bit about the power behind scooters right right when we were walking down and you discovered your bike had been jacked but you were explaining to me that like obviously electric bikes can't go off like cc's as far as rating for how uh um for um whether you can plate them or not uh it's purely based on a number of it's uh just based off the wattage just wattage okay yeah all right so a scooter is still going to have um it's it's still going to have a power limit. Well, they don't want to specify you can only have this much torque. You can only have this much horsepower. So they say, well, you have to be under this number of cc's and there is a max horsepower limit. Okay. Which so, can be, which, you know, horsepower is directly converted into watts. So, mm. so long- scooters will always be low power no matter. Right. Yeah. Even, even with the electric. Yeah. Conversion. It's not just a cc limit. You can't just have like, a twin turbo four cylinder 49 cc two stroke scooter well, this is my argument that the bergman is not a scooter it's a higher class of vehicle like <laughs> you know not because of just all the insane amenities but you know that 650 twin and what was it like a like a 5.6 uh or seven second or something zero to 60 like quicker than a car significantly quicker than a car all right, so you can have a good getaway scooter. Well, if you're in an urban area, a little mm-hmm. 50 cc is about the best possible thing. You know, we were talking about well, how... even a lot of like the the you know a Vespa GT, you know, 300 cc twin. That no, it's a single. Is it still a single? Yep. Oh, but yeah, even those even those bikes are plenty fast enough, and they're They'll still do pretty small. Yeah. The 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 thing about a scooter, I maybe we should just take a little second here, like circle back and talk about what makes a scooter the perfect vehicle for a crime. Because so if you think about it, in an urban area, right? We were talking about how the Upco is so great because even though right now it well not right now, but it was you had it set that it had a thirty mile an hour max, right? You weren't actually getting anywhere any slower because if you check your average speed in your car, you're never really averaging more than 30-something on a tank of gas, right? So in town, you know, if you can just hold constant with lane splitting or whatever, going down alleyways and all that stuff on a scooter, you're just as fast as any car getting around town. And you can go places the police can't, right? With their cars anyway. Then when they get on foot, well, you're still powered, so you're faster, so you're definitely going to lose them then, right? And then what kind of crime are you committing, and how hard are they going to commit to chasing you? 
So when you find this intersection of petty theft to, you know, mild grand larceny, right? You know, yeah, stealing jewelry TV and phones. Lars. You're basically, you've, you've, with your mobility, you are creating this maximum, this, this optimal ratio of risk and reward is what you're doing. Right. And on top of that, the scooter is very easily stolen and you can just dump it and like, okay, what are you out? You stole it to begin with, right? So you can just dump it at any point. And if you get away completely with it, it has some value being chopped up and turned into something else. Hmm. So there's a resale for the thing. It's for the bike itself also, which is crazy. So then it, it's weird I'm coming around to this strange conclusion is that you should be much more afraid of a teenager on a 50 CC scooter than a big bad biker on a Harley. Cause worldwide it turns out that two dudes on a scooter is much more threatening than some big dude on a big bike. Like lots more people are getting, are getting you know, Two dudes on a 50cc scooter with helmets on. Yeah, or hoodies and masks or whatever. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying, like, you know, <laughs> the next time you see some girl in a three-quarter helmet <laughs> a brown leather jacket just, like, run off the road and like, hide <laughs> under the bushes. <laughs> but, I, you know, here's the thing. What do you think the likelihood is of the this whole thing with Scotland Yard and everything cracking down on the scooter crime and it may be taking some more seasoned criminals to sort of take the show on the road and move something like this into New York or LA something like that well it just absolutely wouldn't work in LA LA is just way too spread out way too highway dependent you can lane split in LA though. I, it's probably the yeah. Same. There's so plenty the of back alleys and roads and things where you can get away. Mm, they like the they like their chase helicopters. That's true. Oh, chase yeah. Hel- yeah, that might be a thing. New York probably more feasible. Chicago also more feasible. Yeah, but again, is there are there enough scooters there that are easily stolen to make it work? I don't know. Because I'll tell you, it's completely against the culture, and it's really only the culture in Tokyo that this doesn't happen there, right? People are kind of way too socially conscious for something like this to get rampant and widespread. But if you have no morals in Tokyo, you could just steal a scooter every day with no repercussions, (laughs) right? It's kind of unique to Japan is... Like, just the people will morally, like, just shut you down if they see you committing crimes. Or they'll just, like... Oddly enough, one thing that the Japanese don't really give that much of a shit about is bicycle theft. Bicycles get stolen left and right willy-nilly in Japan. They're almost just considered community property. It's It's, like, the most prevalent crime in Japan. And it's not that much of a jump to scooters. And there's a lot of fucking scooters in Tokyo. I'll tell you what. Yeah, the only thing stopping mass vehicle theft in Japan is just the absolutely unstoppable force 
of extreme social conformity. Mm. Which is how that law against the Bosuzoku came about. Yes. It's just, yeah, that makes... it's just you can't step out of line in Japan. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point that even if you have, like, dissenting political opinion, you have to drive around in a giant bus with blacked-out windows and yell your message over loud microphones because having a radical political opinion is not cool in Japan. (laughs) I mean, some of them have fucked up political opinions, trust me, and they should be hiding behind megaphones because they're pieces of shit. But... That 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 is that is the culture there for whatever reason. I mean, I love Japan and overall I love the culture. I think there's a lot of things culturally they should try to export to other places. Mm. But their hardcore social conformity does go a little too far at times. But I mean, in the case of stopping people from getting all their shit stolen all the time, it it, it is pretty nice. It was pretty nice living there just to be able to generally trust everyone to some mm. extent, except with your fucking bicycle. Yeah. Holy crap, they're savages with bicycles. <laughs> yeah, I've read about kids getting on the on the bus and like go or good getting on the train and going to another city and going to Disneyland like without their parents. Yeah, we did that several times. All the time. But yeah. I mean that's a pretty safe place. It's extremely safe. It's wonderful. But you'll get your bike stolen. <laughs> like, you really will. I, I had so many bikes stolen. To the point, once that I actually stole a bike that had been, well, I, not even really stole. It had been chained to a street lamp on our street for, like, three months. There's spider webs on it and everything. And I finally had this series of bicycles stolen and recovered one of them several times. And it kept getting stolen again and again and again. And we went through these increasingly larger and more complex systems of locks. I mean, to this day, Swiggy is still a master at breaking combination locks. Well, one, one of your other brothers was in my garage and started just breaking locks. It's a skill you just yeah. get living there, yeah. And Dad's good at it too. But it, but here's the thing, though. Here's why you got good at it. Your bike would get stolen, and then you would find your bike across town locked up. So you'd be like, "Oh, I have to break this lock to get my bike back." Right? That's how we got good at it. Or you were buying new bicycle locks so often, you would forget your combination. So you'd have to break into your own lock frequently. <laughs> It was insane. So, yeah, I so I so we went and, you know, did the little thing put up to your ear and, and broke this combination lock on this bike. And I was riding it around. And then the police picked me up for riding a stolen bike around. <laughs> and then, so they hauled me down to the Koban and they started interrogating me. I this call, is a true story. This is a true story. I call my mom. She comes down to the station and she was mad as hell. And she... <laughs> She's like yelling at the police officer. She's like, we've had all these bikes stolen. This thing was abandoned. We didn't steal it. Da, 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 da. And we like told the police like all these spots around the neighborhood where like bicycles were being stolen and then stashed. And then mm-hmm. other kids after school were getting them and riding them around. And, and eventually they let me go and they thanked us when we left. <laughs> <laughs> they were so surprised that like they accused me of stealing a bicycle and then we came back with indignation <laughs> and flipped the script on them in a really bizarre way. Oh. So I, I like yeah. how this has changed from uh 
from talking about crime to it's like you're almost to the point where you're explaining what your criminal mind would do. Right. Like, this is how I got good at picking locks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This is probably the most off topic we've ever gotten. Although we are still talking about two wheels and theft. So we're sort of saying, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else on motocrime right now. I know I had other things, but I just can't remember what they are. And we're at over an hour 45, so I'm good to end this if you guys are good. Yeah, yeah, let's go. All right, cool. So, as always, I'm going to remember, everyone, leave us those ratings. And oh, wait, hang on. Oh, hold on, you got something? I do have one thing I want to bring up. Okay. This is a, another thing you can do to make the winter days pass by. There is a, a great YouTube channel that started up. It's called uh, Karma Kazi, and it's all about a guy from Alaska who, back in September, flew to Washington, bought a Royal Enfield Himalaya, and rode it the 2,800 miles back to Alaska. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and he, it, it's a whole solo trip. He's moto camping most of the time. And he's recording everything. You know, he's doing like 200, 300 miles a day and documenting everything. Very entertaining. I highly recommend it. Yeah, let's check that out. All right, cool. And I'll, and I'll say Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. Happy and New Year, if, everyone. I won't be here next week. So congratulations on one year. Yeah. Thank you. All right, cool. So as I was saying, leave us those ratings and reviews. We're going to make it to 150 reviews, guys. I know we are. So, do your part. That's your cost of admission for all the amount of time that we put into making this show for you. Now, with that, I think all I have to do now is remind you to stay safe and stay tuned, and we'll run the outro. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my mind.